Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment Podcast. Podcast. Folks, this is a podcast that's purpose is for Georgia judges or anybody else who might be interested in what goes on in the courtroom. Please understand that we are Georgia-focused, meaning that we are going to focus our attention on issues that arise under Georgia law, but occasionally we will get into some subjects of common interest. And we really appreciate you folks listening. And as we go to the studio audience, we ask, please hold your applause till the end. All right, now to the studio. Hey, folks, welcome to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And once again, post-coronavirus, we have our friend of the podcast and contributor, Mr. Garen Mueller, with us today. Garen, how are you? I'm good. I hope everybody's staying healthy out there. So, you know, Tane, Garen usually talks about evidence essentials. We've sort of developed that little series and That's his niche, so to speak. His niche, yes. And yeah. so today we've asked him to cover something else. Why don't you tell the people what we're going to talk about today? Yeah, today we're going to talk about uh, something that we dealt with back when I practiced in civil law, offers of settlement, something we all know and love. Now, Garen, when you talk to old-time lawyers who have tried a bunch of civil cases, they will say that offers of settlement have really changed the landscape of particularly tort litigation. Tell the folks a little bit about, because this is what you do for a living, and so tell the folks a little bit about what an offer of settlement is, and then we'll get into some of the mechanics of how it works. Right. So generally an offer of settlement is an offer from one party to the other party to resolve the claims or a specific amount of claims within the case. Um, You know, old timers may hear about Holt demands and they may recall what's called a Holt demand. And those are the things that really set up the legislature to go in and create two new statutes. I don't appreciate being referred to as an old timer, but go right ahead, Garen. (laughs) Yeah, some of us, some of us use those a great deal. So what's the statute number since we love talking about statutes on the Good Judgment Podcast? It is always a bad idea to give out statutes, but you can find all this information at goodjudgepod.com. Go ahead, Garen. Well, pre-suit offers a settlement are uh, under 9-11-67.1. Post-suit offers of settlement are codified under 9-11-68. All right. So let's, let's keep it. Let's keep the, the hypothetical in this case that we have a typical road wreck case where you have a plaintiff and you have an insurer. 67.1 and then Holt demands. What's the, what's the difference between 67.1 and Holt demands or are they essentially the same thing? So Holt demand predates 67.1. The case, the Holt case, basically set up an insurer's obligation to their insured, and it created the basis for bad faith claims or what a plaintiff's attorney may end up saying, busting the limits. You know, uh, if an insurer doesn't uh, resolve a claim within the policy limits, then there's a chance that they could be found to have been acting in bad faith. And uh, if a verdict is incurred above the limits, then that insurer may be on the hook for that. And so Holt really set up what an insurer is obligated to do in in regard to their insured. And as a result of that, the legislature enacted 9-11-67.1, which really required things to be in writing and put some specifics 
to protect both the insurers and the offerer uh, moving forward. So when back in the day when Holt demands were the thing, it came from that Southern General versus Holt case, 262 Georgia 267, that I think a lot of plaintiffs' lawyers have sort of as a as a template on their on their program, their word processing program, and their demand packages. But what does not what does 67.1 say are the requirements of a, an offer of settlement pretrial? Well, first I want to point out from the hypothetical, it's for motor vehicle torts only. Um, but the requirements are the offer must be in writing. It may state a time period uh, to accept, but it has to be at least 30 days. It must be sent via certified mail or overnight mail with a return receipt. It must reference the code section 911.67.1. And then there's a few things that must be described very clearly within the uh, offer. And those things are the amount of payment, the specific parties to be released, the type of release that will be provided, whether it's a limited liability release, a policy release, a general release, and the claim specifically that will be released. So what happens when you give you give the insurer 30 days to respond and they respond with, hey, can we have 60? And you say yes. Does that void your Holt demand? Parties are always uh, able to contract any way they want. However, uh, if we agree to 60 days, then that's fine. I mean, we can, we can change it. We can clarify. And in the statute, it says recipients may seek clarification regarding terms, liens, subrogation claims, uh, standing to release, medical bills, medical records. And then it says other relevant facts. And those are not construed as counteroffers. Uh, but obviously, you know, a court's going to allow a party uh, to contract as they seem fit. So if the insurer says, hey, we need 60 days, and the offerer agrees to that, that's perfectly fine. But if the insurer doesn't respond or the insurer um, asks for something that's kind of outside the norm or the statute for clarification, then that could be deemed a counteroffer. Back in the, uh, back in the day, uh, before Wade and I became prominent judicial figures, um, <laughs> I used to be, I used to be a civil attorney, and I did a lot of defense work. Um, and I used to love these Holt offers from the defense side. And the reason that I loved them was I like to find out how much insurance a particular party had, uh, um, and and put the insurance company in the dilemma, or, or I, I used to like as a, as a defense attorney, to put my insurance company in a, in a dilemma if I was representing the side that wasn't the insurance company. In other words, if I was representing the client but not the insurer, uh, I would always demand uh, that they pay policy limits, or at least that they offer policy limits. Because if you're representing the insured and not the insurance company, um, you want to make sure that your client gets covered and you want to put the insurance company in a, in a dilemma of at least putting the policy limits on the table. Now, we all know they never did that right at the outset of the case, but you wanted to always write them and say, hey, we know you. We know my client is covered by this insurance. You really ought to offer the policy limits to settle this case and uh, put them in a bit of a dilemma. So I know that's still going on out there or variations of that are still going on out there on behalf of insureds. Um, but that isn't what the statute's talking about. What the statute's talking about is 
uh, a plaintiff being able to offer to settle a case or a defendant being able to offer a settle to settle a case during a specific time period. Is that right, Garen? Right. And 67.1 is really geared toward a claimant, a plaintiff offering to resolve the case with the insured uh, within the policy limits. Um, and what happened after uh, Holt was really, you know, some plaintiff's attorneys probably took it too far and made offers that were yeah, I know. I know. Everybody seems very surprised by that. Uh, yeah, you know, we so, were aghast <laughs> that that had the, happened. The, their demands were either verbal, not very clear, uh, or they made demands that were almost uh, unable to be met. Or, you know, meet me on top of a mountain with the check or whatever it may be. So that created the legislature's need to say, all right, well, let's put let's codify this. Let's put some regulation on it and say this is what you have to do this is how you have to do it to make it clear for both parties well is there is there also a provision in there garen uh you know because this is always what's important as to when you should get payment like how soon can i get my check um can you put a provision in there that says that you can and you can require payment in a certain period but not less than 10 days after acceptance and there's a good case on that uh grange which is actually an 11th circuit case that's uh, 861 Federal 3rd, 1224, a 2017 case, um, which talks about that. And, you know, the offeror can condition acceptance upon timely payment, but they can't make that payment in less than required in less than 10 days after the acceptance. And that payment actually means delivery of the funds. And you will see in the Grange case, the insurer wrote a check that was un, uh, without an address. And they said, well, that that satisfies it. And the court found it did not. Yeah, I have actually had some experience dealing with insurance companies. And I don't know whether, you know, I've just had a difficult time with them or not. But the people who are writing the check are always in Omaha. And we can't get in <laughs> touch with them. And then they have to pony express that check to a bank in kansas and then it's got to be received by somebody in florida who then has to overnight it to our atlanta office and then somebody has to walk it to marietta is usually the way that happens and so i don't know if that was just my experience but it was usually about 180 days to get it uh, right. yeah. well 911 67.1 uh seeks to cure that and saying, you know, you can require timely payment after acceptance, but it can't be less than 10 days. All right. So let's 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 talk now about what happens if we have filed suit. We've done some maybe we've done some discovery, maybe we're kind of moving the case along. And can both parties make one of these offers of settlement under um 91168? Correct. Yes. Under 91168. Either party, defendant or plaintiff, may make an offer of settlement, and it works a little differently. There are a few requirements. Um, this the offer cannot be made sooner than 30 days after service of summons and complaint, and it must be made more than 30 days prior to trial or 20 days prior to trial if it's a counteroffer. All right, so let's let's put this in context. We have a lawsuit in a car wreck case. You've done some discovery, we're moving the case forward, and the insurer 
offers to settle the case for $5,000. Let's say the defendant. Okay, the defendant, yeah, technically. Because that's, that's the way correct. the statute's correct. worded. So if you get an offer for $5,000, what happens if you get a judgment for $20,000? What happens if you get a judgment for $1,500? Okay. So if the defendant makes an offer to resolve the case to the plaintiff, and the plaintiff does not receive a judgment or a verdict that is 75% of that offer, then the defendant can move for attorney's fees and expenses to be paid by the plaintiff. And so the flip side of that, if the plaintiff makes an offer, let's say the plaintiff made the offer to resolve the case within 5,000 for $5,000. And then the plaintiff goes to trial and receives a verdict or judgment that is 125% of the offer, then the plaintiff can move for fees and expenses. And when, Garen, when you say they can move for fees and expenses, is that something that's automatically, uh, that they're, to which they're automatically entitled to under the statute, or is that something where the court has discretion? Well, yes and no. So subsection D1 says the court shall order the payment of fees and expenses upon a showing by the offering party that the, basically the statute was uh, satisfied However, subsection D2 says the court has some discretion. The court may determine that an offer was not made in good faith uh, in setting forth the basis for that determination. In that case, the court may disallow it. But remember, you have to have written findings to disallow in that case. Um, so the court should grant the, uh, the motion for fees and expenses unless the court finds that the offer was not made in good faith. And now there's some statutory requirements with 68, just like there were with 67.1, aren't there, Gary? Yes. And I'll go through them. Uh, once again, it's got to be in writing and it's got to state the code section, 91168. It's got to identify who is making the offer and to whom the offer is being made. Obviously, you need to identify the claims the offer would resolve. It should state any relevant conditions, it should state the total amount of the proposed offer. It should state whether any punitive damages are included in the offer or being uh, resolved by the offer. It should state whether the offer includes attorney's fees and expenses. And it should include a certificate of service and be served by statutory overnight mail or certified mail. So let me just let me just jump in. It, for those of you out there who are judges who are hearing these kinds of cases, I mean, there's basically your checklist, um, you know, as far as analyzing a claim or an offer of settlement that's been made in a particular case where you're being asked to award attorney's fees. Did they do all of those things? And then is the judgment either in the case of, of an offer made by a plaintiff 125 uh, percent or more of, of the offer or 75 percent on the other side? side. Is that, is that about right? That's right. So Garen, is this something that the jury's even hearing about? I mean, is the jury understanding what the pretrial offers and demands and all that were, or is this solely a judge thing? Well, it's going to be the fact finder. So interestingly enough, what will happen is uh, after a verdict is received, if it's a jury trial, then the, the party, the prevailing party would make the motion to the court. And then a second bifurcated trial would take place wherein the prevailing party would present these facts uh, to the fact finder. And then the fact finder would make that determination. You know, Tane, I have found, I have found way that juries really love a good bifurcated trial. Cause you say, <laughs> and, th and there's more, 
<laughs> right yeah, at the end of their verdict and they think they're ready to go home and they've got all their stuff in their hands ready to walk out and you're like no 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 we've got this other trial we need you to do and it's all about money right <laughs> you know tane we, when we were talking about how to try a case one of the things we keep talking about and sort of reiterating is that before you release that jury after you've received the written verdict form i guess maybe you've polled the jury whatever you ask the parties, is there any reason why we should not allow this jury to leave? Right. You know, if somebody hasn't brought that, I think that parties generally bring this to your attention well in advance. It's usually a part of a pretrial order, et cetera. But if it's not, and you, and you're just blindly going along thinking you too have gathered your stuff and you're ready to go. And all of a sudden somebody says, wait, there's more that affects the judge too. So folks, when you are, or handling a civil case when you have insurers and, and all of that, just make sure you ask the question, is there anything else we need to do before I give my little speech and release this jury? Because sometimes well, and, all, and, and practically speaking, too, you will have had the parties <laughs> in advance um, give to you uh, request to charge the jury on this issue. So well, there will be a heads up there that this issue might come up because – Again, you've got to go back and charge the jury just on this on this issue on offers of settlement. Garrett? Well, you know, and to the parties, uh, any attorneys that may be listening to this, please make your judge aware of this, because I will tell you, you will not have a very happy judge if you spring this on them when they're walking out the door after the, the jury trial. So, you know, have a little foresight. Make sure that you've covered this with the judge in pretrial and uh, everybody's aware of what could happen. Now, Tane, let's talk about reality for a moment. You have a client that has a car wreck case and you get an offer of settlement in from the defendant. Is it, does it change the dot, the attorney client dynamic when you get one of those and you have a plaintiff who is looking at the possibility of being required to pay the defense party's attorney's fees? Well, it doesn't if you've properly prepared your client, um, as, as hopefully anybody out there would have for all of the different possibilities. But I think, I think there are some certain, certainly some obligations that you then have as an attorney to explain to the client what the possibilities are of the uh, collection of attorney's fees if you, you know, do not accept the offer, reject the offer, make a counter offer. I think those are, those are points that every attorney needs to be aware of and needs to cover with their client. Garen, what's the reality in the 2020 practice of law? If you had to guess, can you give me a percentage of your cases where you receive an offer of settlement from the other party? It's pretty low. Um, you know, I, I run a plaintiff's practice. So most of the time the insurer is not sending a 9-11-68 uh, offer of settlement this way. I would send more probably, I would say in maybe 25% of my litigated cases, I may send one uh, and maybe five to 10% uh, would come from the defense side. You know, Tim, we talked about attorney's fees under 91514 in a prior episode. Garen, does 91514 play any part in this 91168? It does not. Uh, however, 91168E uh, is kind of thrown in there and it allows the prevailing party to do something very similar, uh, and that is to ask for damages based on a frivolous claim or defense. Uh, so the prevailing party would then make a motion, and then once again, you have this bifurcated hearing 
where the damages may include reasonable attorneys, fees, and expenses of litigation. Uh, and then once again, the finder of fact would make a determination, excuse me, a determination as to whether such frivolous claims or defenses were asserted. Um, but you can't do 9-15-14 and 9-11-68-E. You have to choose. So most of y'all's fees in the, on the plaintiff's side are contingency fees. Correct. How in the world are, are we supposed to award a third or 40% or whatever, 25%, whatever the contract is? How, how do we as judges deal with contingency fees when there's a request for attorney's fees? So there's a really good case on that. It came out in 2019, and I might be murdering the name. It's Kalia, K-H-A-L-I-A, Inc. versus Rosebud, 836, Southeastern 2nd, 840. That's a Georgia Court of Appeals case of 2019. In that case, the court was kind of faced with the same thing. I mean, most of these cases are going to be on a contingent basis. So they decided what they would do was look at uh, a value-added approach, and that's they compared the fee to what uh, the contingent fee would be if the uh, other party would have accepted the offer, and then they compared it to what the fee would be with the verdict, uh, whatever the verdict was. So if it was a 40% fee, 40% of the offer, if it had been accepted versus 40% of the verdict. And they found that was the value added, um, and they determined those were the appropriate attorney's fees. Of course, that, that rate was adjusted for some reasonableness, but I thought that was a really smart approach because most of these are going to be contingent-based cases. Well, I was, I was probably the only plaintiff's attorney in the world who used to keep my hours on plaintiff's cases. Um, I just, I had gotten in the habit as a defense attorney. And so as a plaintiff's attorney, I, I kept uh, my hours. And there's some case law out there too, that says that, you know, you can, you can also do that uh, as a measure of potential attorney's fees in a case. Yeah, that Kalia case basically approved that as a method of awarding attorney's fees, right, Garen? That's correct. And, you know, a contingency basis alone isn't enough. So if uh, somebody comes in and says, hey, I've got a contingent fee, that's it, judge, and presents no other evidence, that's not going to be enough. It has to be more than that. So in this case, they presented, you know, the offers and they showed what they did. A defense expert actually came in and testified that they thought uh, 200 hours at $250 an hour was appropriate, but obviously the court didn't go with that. So there has to just be more than just an agree a contingent agreement. There has to be some evidence for the court. Well, and that's smart too, because as judges and as we've talked about in attorney's fees award cases, we still always have to make a reasonable determination of attorney's fees. I mean, that's going to be the question. If it's if it's an, a fee that we're making the uh, the judgment about, we have to make a reasonable determination. So, Garen, um, when we first started doing these evidence essentials, we were all at crowded around the table at the University of Georgia. Uh, with our friends from UGA and how kind they were. Now you know. you're in your office, Tane's in his office. I'm in my home right. office trying to make a podcast. You know, this whole thing with the coronavirus has really um, complicated the lives of, of the justice system as a whole, lawyers and, and judges alike. So we really appreciate your time. Anything oh, else that we missed on this, Garen? No, I don't think so. You know, just to recap, 9-11-67.1 is pre-suit. It's from the injured party to the insurer or defendant. 9-11-68 is post-litigation. It can go 
both ways. And then as always, you know, these offers are always going to be uh, construed against the offeror. So they need to be clear as to the claims, uh, who's going to be released, the claims are going to be released, the type of release, the parties. Just go the extra mile and make sure that everything is very clear because otherwise it could be construed against the offeror. You know, Tim, we talked about it in our uh, previous attorney's fees episode, how frustrating it is when the attorneys who are seeking the fees don't break open their file and get all the details right and follow the statutes and all that and put all that on the record so we don't have much to work with. This is another example of a, an occasion when an attorney needs, if they're really going to do this, they need to break open their file and, and follow the statute and, and sort of check those boxes so that we have something to work with. Yeah, and as I said a, a little while ago, folks, uh, there's a nice checklist type outline that Garen's made up for you, and you can find that on our website at goodjudgepod.com. So for attorneys, judges, everybody out there who's listening, uh, you can go take a look at that outline, and I think it'll help you in these kinds of cases. Folks, that's what we had to talk about on the issue of offers of settlement. Garen, thank you again for all of your hard work. We love it you, when you're a part of the podcast. It gives us another voice um, and lets the listeners have a different voice. So I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And I'm Garen Mueller. Friend of the podcast. F-O-P. <laughs> F-O-P. Folks, thank you for listening. And don't forget, wash your hands. Thanks for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This podcast was originally the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, who is the executive director of ICJE. Special thanks to the University of Georgia College of Law and specifically to Mr. Jim Henneberger. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, for editing out as much of our stupidity as he can. But he can't get it all. We are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead NJO, that's New Judge Orientation, for new Superior Court Judges and for their support of this project. The opinions expressed on this podcast are our own and do not reflect the opinions of CSCJ, ICJE, the UGA College of Law, or anyone else for that matter. These are barely the opinions of Wade Padgett and Tang Kell, so we definitely aren't speaking for anyone else. You can contact us on our website, goodjudgepod.com. Or send us an email at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. So, Tane, I guess we better bang the gavel on this episode. Anything else you feel like we need to say? Only to quote Janet Jackson, that's the end. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Men Podcast.